Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers Bible Study, we're in the book of Acts. We're going to be starting chapter 6, where deacons are appointed by the disciples. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Lord, thanks again for this time together with you and with Mark here teaching us and leading us through this very interesting and very vital study of the book of Acts and where your church has started and is growing and reaching out throughout the world. And we thank you for this and we thank you for this lesson we're about to receive in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening, Amen. Mark. Good evening. Glad to be back with you all. We've been looking at the systematic unfolding of all of God's promises to Israel uh, in the book of Acts and how we're seeing a restoration of Israel, but it's a, it's a spiritual reconstitution of Israel. And there, it's kind of a continuation way of the contrast we saw in the Gospel of John between the carnal and the spiritual and how the, the people of Judea in the first century didn't understand the uh, symbolism in the words of Jesus. And some of them are having trouble with the apostles teaching a spiritual fulfillment of the promises made to the, uh, to the prophets. But some are catching on, and by, by and large, the word is having a, a great impact on the Judean population and their numbers are multiplying all through the early chapters of the book of Acts. We had in chapter 5 after one married couple were were struck dead due to uh, a little bit of uh, fraud on their part. Even after that there were more and more Judeans who were believing and their numbers were growing dramatically and the leaders of the country harassed the apostles, arrested them again. They were released by a messenger of God. They went right back to teaching. They didn't try to flee. They went right back to the temple courtyard and continued what they were doing uh, without any fear or regard whatsoever for the governmental leaders there in Judea. And they're continuing daily as chapter 5 closes with their teaching in the temple and in households. All right, well, let's begin this evening by reading the first six verses of chapter 6. In those days, as the number of disciples grew, 
the ones who spoke Greek complained about their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food as compared with the widows of those who spoke Hebrew. The twelve assembled the community of the disciples and said, It is not right for us to neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Look around among your own number, brothers, for seven men acknowledged to be deeply spiritual and prudent, and we shall appoint them to this task. This will permit us to concentrate on prayer and the ministry of the word. The proposal was unanimously accepted by the community. Following this, they selected Stephen, a man filled with faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, who had been a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who first prayed over them and then imposed hands on them. Great. Thank you, Leslie, very much. The idea that the Judean followers of Jesus were continuing to increase continues here. In verse 4, they are increasing or multiplying, as some translations say, we we were already way over the number of 10,000 before. So, I mean, I don't know what this means. We don't know exactly 20,000, 30,000. Uh, but the number is getting quite large compared to the 120 who were still faithful to Christ at the time of his crucifixion. And this is not, you know, too many months removed from that still at this time. We, I think we have to remember the history here a little bit that the Judean people were the remnant of the old nation of Judah, which survived until 586 B.C., and then it was utterly destroyed, as God had predicted and described in great detail before it happened, for punishment of their crimes and idolatry and so on. And they were all carried away to Babylon, and there's psalms written about that, and so I tell. But after 70 years or so, a tiny remnant started coming back to rebuild Judea, and th- this story is told in Ezra and Nehemiah, and several of the minor prophets are also uh, written during that time. It was a time of great struggle, but the point is, is that those books tell us that only a tiny percent of the Judean people even bothered to go home. The others had gotten so comfortable in Babylon after two generations that they just stayed there, or they got caught in the currents of commerce throughout the uh, world and migrated to population centers throughout the world and became known as the dispersion and that's very key here to understanding what's going on here in this in this paragraph greek was the language of the world really at that time it was the because of the conquest of alexander the great Greek spread all the way to India to the east and their culture was admired and well they had even colonized part of Italy 
uh, already, and so it had spread west as well. Latin was the official government language of the Roman Empire, but Greek was the common everyday language of the people and of commerce uh, throughout the Roman Empire. And so we see a distinction here between the Greek-speaking Judean people and the Hebrew-speaking Judean people. And uh, this Hebrew, as I think we've pointed out, the Hebrew spoken at this time is not the same Hebrew that was spoken prior to 586 B.C., but was really just a variant of the Aramaic language of Babylon because they had been you know, absorbed into Babylon during that captivity. And then you know, they spread out across the world from uh, Babylon. And so the, the ones that were still in Babylon and the ones that went to, back to Palestine spoke Aramaic. The ones that had migrated to other population centers pretty much spoke Greek as their first language. And they may have spoken Aramaic or I guess some people call it modern Hebrew as a second language, but they were categorized here by their primary language, Greek versus uh, Aramaic. And a complaint was voiced that the Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked at the daily distribution of, of food. And this goes back all the way to chapter 2, where after the the feast of Pentecost, the Judean people who would have gone home uh, stayed in Jerusalem to be taught by the apostles and the um, original disciples who were there. So a large body stayed, and this is what uh, led to some of the um, folks with property in that area selling it so that all these people could be fed uh, while they lingered there in the area of Jerusalem. But this involved you know, a pretty massive logistics problem. And the 12 here, the apostles, were getting uh, bogged down by, by these complaints. This is also, I think, intentionally parallel to what happened to Moses in the wilderness. And we've seen as kind of a sub-theme in the book of Acts thus far, the parallel to the Exodus, as recorded in the book of Exodus, in those days, the Israelite people were being called out of Egypt or Egyptian bondage. And we're told, maybe indirectly, but we're still told in the scriptures that this was the Egyptian bondage, uh, bondage to sin. And they were called out of that, called to the wilderness, and they wandered 40 years and then entered into the promised land. We have a 40-year period here that has just begun where the Judean people are being called out of their bondage to the law this time, to the law of Moses. And Paul goes into great detail in his letter to the Galatians and then his letter to the Romans and the whole letter of Hebrews uh, goes into this as well. But uh, they were being called out of this bondage to the law to enter into the new newly restored spiritual Israel, and so it was a new exodus. And so Moses got bogged down in the wilderness and was told by his father-in-law to appoint judges to help handle these carnal details so he could focus on the weightier matters. And in similar fashion, and probably intentionally, the apostles decide to 
appoint seven men, but they're going to do it in a way that's worthy of note as well. Now, I'm sure if any of these big churches that most of us go to was going to hire somebody new or make some change in organizational structure, they would call together the whole congregation, no matter how large, so that they could all be of one mind before proceeding with the organizational change. And I say that uh, tongue-in-cheek. I don't know. Have you all been consulted uh, on any (laughs) recent organizational changes at your church? No. Uh, Major. Major, you have? We have a new pastor. Well, but were you consulted or? Well, we had uh, uh, meetings. Okay. And voting. A lot goes behind the scenes, I'm sure. Yeah, beware committees and men's Mm -hmm. business meetings and so on. But remember, how how large of a group was this uh, congregation in Jerusalem by this time? Oh. You see what I'm saying? It was thousands, I guess. Tens of thousands. But this begins a pattern. I'm sorry, Leslie. I was going to say as big as one of the major uh, Judeo-Christian churches of today. Uh, Yes, (laughs) of our big megachurches. But we, we begin seeing a pattern here which is repeated throughout the book of Acts where when there is a decision the whole congregation is assembled and they come to a consensus agreement before they proceed with action and this is uh, I mean this would not work in you know in American churches today in many cases because it requires mutual submission and subjection of the women to the men, the younger to the older, and everyone to Christ, who's the head. So if everyone is in mutual uh, subjection to each other, it is possible to come to consensus decisions even in larger groups. But if, if there's a bunch of factions and you know, backbiting and closed room politicking, so on, you know, this is not possible. But this should be our goal is to achieve this, not to have some kind of institutional hierarchy that decides things in closed door board of directors meetings and so on. You know, just my opinion there. And we'll see that there's a couple of times when the apostles do meet privately before they hold the congregational meeting. But they... They hold the congregation, the whole congregation, the women participate, just the men. We'll see how significant that is a little bit later on in the book because the first century Judean culture gave women a very low place in the synagogues. They were segregated. They had to sit in a secondary location, screened off from the men. Even today in Israel at some of the Jewish holy sites like I had the opportunity to visit Samuel's tomb north of Jerusalem. The uh, women go in one door and one side, and they stay in a completely segregated part of the building from the men. They each can see part of this, uh, I forget what you call it, but it's a big beer. It's a beautiful brocade of uh, black velvet with all this embroidery on it that represents Samuel's tomb. The women see one end of it, and the men see another end. So... Women were segregated, and they were not thought highly of. They were Their opinion was not valued at all, and 
a lot of the rabbinic writings uh, talk about what a waste of a man's strength it is to talk to a woman. So for the women to be included in these meetings, this is a big deal. This is a major change from uh, what was experienced in Judea in the first century then. And this is still different from what most religious organizations and institutions uh, do when they make major decisions uh, today. So I think it's worthy of note. So this tomb of Samuel was obviously a Jewish shrine. It was not, we weren't talking about a Christian shrine or a Muslim sign because the in Muslim worship, the, the women are segregated from the men behind a curtain. So it's kind of similarity there. Oh, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I haven't been in a Muslim service ever. But uh, this was actually a crusader church, and it's half of it is is a is an Orthodox Jewish uh, study center in there with this tomb of Samuel, and then the other half is a mosque, and uh, uh-huh. we we got yeah we got to kind of poke our head in where the mosque was, and there was an office there was no one there in the mosque that day, but uh, they come in a completely separate door <laughs> from the uh, Orthodox Jews, and there, there were a bunch of men in there who were just in there studying, and I guess. That was, uh, you know, they, they're exempted from military service if they are engaged in rabbinic studies or something. So there were a bunch of these students there that were studying uh, things that were in like a library uh, right in the same room with this. Uh, and I forget the word, but there's a cenotaph, I think, is, is, is the word. It's a, it's a memorial. There's nothing really in it, but it represents the tomb of somebody famous whose real tomb is lost or doesn't exist anymore. Anyway, just wanted to make the point that that having the whole congregation, the whole company, verse 5 says, he says brethren in verse 3, but then he says the whole company in verse 5, and we see, we'll see this repeated later on in uh, in the book of Acts. I think you ought to reiterate the fact that adding women to the consensus is a major turnaround in in uh, society back then. Well, I guess you just and, did that. <laughs> so I guess it is, so. It is worthy of note. I mean, there there are some cautions here because, again, we do see in Paul's writings that the women are to be in subjection to the men, just as the church is in subjection to Christ, her husband, because of the symbolism that's involved. We see a huge yeah. problem with just an endless war on men in our culture and really on the Western ideal, the idea of chivalry, the idea of the men being the stronger uh, gender, but deferring that strength to elevate the weaker, the, the woman on a pedestal to open doors for her and so on. This whole concept has been under vicious attack in my lifetime over the last 50 yeah. years, and uh, it, it continues on. You know, forbidding boys playing with toy guns or swords or anything like that, and uh, trying to blame men for all the evils of the world, and uh, movies and TV shows and so on, that so men is generally stupid, uh, incapable hulks. So, and I think that this is extended into the churches in that many... Uh, 
many churches have been taken over by women, and the women tend to have more interest in spiritual things than the men, and so the men don't really want to be bothered anyway, so the women just jump in and fill those power vacuums and kind of carry this other cultural assault on the leadership of men into the churches. So I think this has been going on aggressively over the past 30, 40 years as well. So I say this with you know caveats that, that uh, God still intends for the men to be decisive leaders and to be the protectors uh, of the women and to not use their strength to bully and so on. Or, and the whole thing is just falling apart. I, I see young adult men walking through a restaurant parking lot using the foulest language, and there's women and children, you know, right there. And, I mean, this, if I was a boy uh, and that had happened, bystanders would have beaten those guys up. I mean, it was so offensive. It was so foul. It was so loathsome. It was degrading, mm-hmm. you see. But now everything's breaking down. Uh, the men have been treated badly, so now they just do what makes them feel good, and they have no respect for anyone else, and they don't elevate women and children, you know, and so on. So we see a, a whole general breakdown of God's intended order in these matters. But this was a big change that the opinion of the women was valued and so on. But, but again, without this concept of mutual submission and subjection, you see none of this could ever happen. And so we have to put that in context and realize that if we try to take our present day culture and replicate what they did here, I mean, we'd probably end up with a giant food fight or something. I mean, I I don't know, but it could be quite chaotic because everyone's out for themselves, you know, and to, or to build a majority. And, and, and that's not the kind of thing they did. They, they came to a consensus Mm-hmm. what they said was approved by the whole company. So the idea of appointing seven men, first that was agreed to by the entire congregation, and then they chose uh, seven men by consensus. So if we can achieve the level of family that God intends for us to as a local community of believers with uh, love for each other, and mutual subjection, then you see it's possible for even the largest group to have consensus decision-making. And then everyone buys into it, and it's not being dictated by, you know, a board of directors in a closed room. All right, so the the apostles are going to uh, focus on prayer and spiritual things. They're supposed to pick out seven. Seven is a number of significance. It's the number of the completeness of God's Spirit. The, we see that in the book of Revelation and so on. And these men were to be full of the spirit and wisdom uh, who would be put in charge of this business. And we have to continue to differentiate in the book of Acts the indwelling spirit, which is in all believers, and the special gifts of the spirit, which were shown in the apostles and which they apparently had the power to transfer by the laying on of their hands. 
and and we'll see more of this as it progresses. Those are two distinct things. We're differentiating here between the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is common to all believers of all ages, and the special gifts of the Spirit, which were made known in the apostles and were given to them during this 40-year period where they're warning Judea in particular of impending doom with these signs and wonders and you know their ability to raise the dead heal the sick just their shadow passing over I mean no one today has those gifts no one can replicate the type of miracles that they were doing those were the special gifts these special gifts the apostles had were transferred by them laying hands on people and we see that taking place here these men may have already had some of these miraculous gifts but they certainly did and we'll see this repeated in future instances as well just of note that out of the seven we only hear a lot more about Stephen and Philip Nicolaus may have the infamy of being the founder of the Nicolaitan sect which is uh, specifically condemned by Christ in the early part of the revelation but we don't know that the scholars believe that all seven of these were Greek-speaking Judeans Hellenists as it's translated in some in some of the English Bibles so that's very magnanimous of the whole community to select men of the Hellenist community who were apparently the aggrieved party in that their widows were being neglected this way their widows couldn't be neglected intentionally because it was all Greek-speaking Christians uh, who were in charge of the distribution. I think that covers it. Did you all have any other comments or, or thoughts on this? No, I don't think so. All right. The apostles prayed and laid their hands on them. Okay. And uh, verse 7 kind of stands alone, so let's read it. The word of God continued to spread, while at the same time the number of the disciples in Jerusalem enormously increased. There were many priests among those who embraced the faith. All right, so this is kind of a progress report that Luke uh, interjects here into the historical narrative. It's very interesting that a number of priests were joining the community because most of the priests were Sadducees uh, rather than Pharisees, at least, I guess, the upper-level ones. Perhaps the ordinary priests were not so much tied into the uh, Sadducean doctrines and so on. But uh, this is a, a very positive development that a large number of the priests were being uh, brought into the community. And, again, and this was in Jerusalem? Yes. And the wealthier families would have lived there, and the other priests would have lived, uh, you know, scattered throughout Judean Galilee. I was just thinking that the uh, priests of Jerusalem would have witnessed uh, Jesus' trial, most likely, but here they are actively embracing Christ afterwards. There were a large number of priests and probably a greater percentage of them survived and returned 
from the uh, exile in Babylon, and there were so many of them that they they took turns in serving in the temple. The courses that David had set up originally had been reinstituted, and you only would serve in Jerusalem, you know, once a year or something, and then to actually get to go in the temple as as Zechariah did when he was told about having a son, John, you know, that was a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the typical country priest to actually be drawn to go in and light the incense uh, at one of the two daily offerings. So, you know, there there were a lot of priests, and uh, they weren't, they certainly weren't all in Jerusalem at the same time. And a lot of them would have been pious and more humble like Zechariah was and it was probably from that type of priests rather than the high priest families uh, that these priests came from that were rendering obedience to the faith here in verse 7 so you know a, a huge increase we have to go back to the command of Christ in Acts 1 for the disciples to preach the word first in Jerusalem and Judea, then uh, Samaria, and then to the rest of the world. It's playing out exactly as Christ had dictated. And again, this doesn't make sense at all from the dispensationalist point of view because they teach that the kingdom failed completely. And yet we see Christ's plan being followed to a T and being fulfilled exactly as he had desired for it to be fulfilled. So we just can't find any language of failure or postponement anywhere in the book of Acts. Interestingly, too, this kind of sets the stage for our next scene, which is the trial of Stephen and the accusations which will be made against Stephen regarding the temple order because he's going to be accused of saying that the temple order was about to be changed. And the priests being coming into the new community of believers, you know, relates directly to that. <laughs> if if a large enough company of the priests became believers, well, that, would, that in and of itself would change the order of temple worship. So uh, just interesting note here. Anyway, this now... The next paragraph will be um, verses 8 through 10. We can go ahead and read that, please. The Stephen already spoken of was a man filled with grace and power who worked great wonders and signs among the people. Certain members of the so-called synagogue of Roman freedmen, that is, the Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Sicilia, and Asia, would undertake to engage Stephen in debate. But they proved no match for the wisdom and spirit with which he spoke. All right, thank you. So Stephen, his name indicates, you know, kind of uh, the Greek language more than the Aramaic language. And the fact that he's going and teaching in these synagogues of these Judeans of the diaspora from Libya, Cyrenaeans, and Alexandrians, Egypt, and Cilicia, which is 
where Saul was from up in present-day Turkey and Asia, also part of present-day Turkey. These were Greek-speaking areas of the world, and Stephen was, you know, presumably again of this number, and so he's going to where these Greek-speaking Judeans would gather to study the Hebrew Scriptures, and was obviously illustrating how that these Scriptures spoke of the Messiah, and specifically how Jesus of Nazareth would have fulfilled all of these uh, scriptures. And the power of these special gifts of the Spirit are also specifically addressed again here in verse 8. These are the signs and wonders that we are specifically told were given to confirm the word that was spoken. And so his words enough were compelling, and no one could even answer them, but he also had the ability to perform these great signs and wonders, presumably of, of physical healing, but it may have been you know, something concerning uh, speaking in different languages. Uh, there were multiple types of these wonders and signs. But between the two, his opponents were unable to answer him when they rose up and engaged in debate with him. And I think the, f- the fact that he relied on wisdom more than on these signs and wonders uh, is also significant but uh, it was compelling now these these freedmen had quite a bit of influence in the Roman world they were either slaves who had been freed or they were the children of former slaves apparently when Pompey conquered Judea for Rome in the year 63 BC that at that time a significant number of Judeans were taken as slaves. And then they subsequently, I guess a large number of them, were able to earn their freedom, and they became known as the Libertines or Freedmen. And uh, these are the groups that are being involved here. And someone who had been a slave and then was a Freedman was someone that was really respected and looked up to in the Roman world. And so these people had some influence, and they had their own synagogues uh, there in Jerusalem. Yeah, let's just read the rest of the chapter then, please. They persuaded some men to make the charge that they had heard him speak, speaking blasphemies against Moses and God. And in this way, they incited the people the elders, and the scribes. All together they confronted him, seized him, and led him off to the Sanhedrin. There they brought in false witnesses who said, This man never stops making statements against the holy place and the law. We have heard him claim that Jesus the Nazarene will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses handed down to us. The members of the Sanhedrin who sat there stared at him intently. Throughout, Stephen's face seemed like that of an angel. All right, thank you. Now, do any of us believe that Stephen would have actually spoken anything that we would consider a blasphemy? No way. I don't think so. No, I don't think so. But where would he have gotten this crazy idea that Jesus the Nazarene would destroy 
the temple and change the customs which Moses handed down to us. A misquote from Jesus. <laughs> well, was it a misquote or was it an accurate quote? <laughs> a, prophetic, a prophetic quote would be the, the uh, yeah. I should think, the terminology we'd want to use. Yeah, it, I mean, if we go to the all of it discourse, as it's called, which is recorded um, in Matthew, Luke, and uh, Mark, you know, he, this is exactly what Jesus is talking about, the end of the age. And, the, and they all knew that the end of the age was when the religion of Moses would end. And Jesus identified that as also at the time when the temple would be utterly and completely destroyed. So there is a, there is a truth that is mixed in with these trumped-up charges against Stephen. There is some truth. It is significant that it's a future tense that the changing the customs which Moses handed down to us is set in the future along with the destruction of the temple because today the Christians who are not uh, dispensationalists and not Christian Zionists uh, pretty much have uh, fallen back to the position that God was through with Old Covenant Israel at the cross and that the law of Moses, since it was nailed to the cross, was completely done away with at the cross. But this is not the language that we see uh, in the rest of the New Testament. Just as here, the, you know, as Christ has said, not one jot and tittle of the law will pass away until all is fulfilled. Consistently, we see that the customs which Moses handed down would remain until the temple w would be destroyed. So saying that something is going to be destroyed is not really the same as uh, speaking against whatever it is that's going to be destroyed, or certainly not the same as, as blasphemous words. But, of course, you can see why these rabid Judean people would have, have thought that, because the, their temple was still under construction, and it was one of the most magnificent buildings in the world, and it was proof that they were the chosen people of God, and that they could demand a place in God's presence because of that temple standing there uh, in Jerusalem. So for someone to say that it was about to go away would be way more than most Judeans could, could stand. And uh, it would be fairly easy to stir up a mob, uh, which is you know what happened here. All the people, the elders and the scribes, stirred up and grabbed him and dragged him before the Sanhedrin. And they met uh, again in a, they had their own little meeting place directly adjoining the Temple Mount, connected by kind of a little bridge over one of the little uh, valleys, which don't really exist uh, today in, in the same form that they were. They were, a lot of them were filled in with the debris when the Romans destroyed the city in AD 70. But it would have been right hard against the uh, Temple Mount where the Sanhedrin met. And false witnesses, these false witnesses may have been repeating something that somebody else heard Jesus say, but the point was they didn't actually hear Stephen say these things. But, uh, yeah. you know, they, they, they put together things that Jesus said 
with what Stephen said and then jump to the uh, conclusion or accusation at least that uh, that he was speaking blasphemy. And so, of course, you hear all these demonic pronunciations against this man who must be evil incarnate, but when they look at him, you know, you instead of seeing someone that looked like a, a vile blasphemer, they saw someone who had this look about him that was uh, different. And, uh, you know, the art translations say angel and this is that same word in in greek that means messenger uh and it 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 can be a human being or it can be some spiritual heavenly messenger as well you have to use the context to discern which it is but you know this messenger is someone that God? yeah this is someone exactly who's speaking who has he 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 you know you can surmise that he showed no fear he showed no real insolence he just he looked content he he looked like he was speaking with authority with confidence and with power i I mean that those are the things that that come to my mind when we think of someone who would have the face of a messenger of god you would not be worried about somebody contradicting you or tripping you up or anything like that you'd have absolute confidence in what was about to happen and that's that's kind of the lead-in for uh, next next lesson because we'll get to see how Stephen answers all these accusations okay well, that's um, like a good spot to end our study for today thanks so much mark and and leslie thank you thanks for listening be sure to tell a friend about our podcast And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.